Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Michael J. Haller. He's a professor and a chief at University of Florida Health, and we're going to talk about uh, his work in pediatric endocrinology. So, Dr. Haller, Michael, thank you for coming. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, but please tell me about your uh, your work. Is it mostly clinical? Is it research? Is it a mixture of both? Yeah, so I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, and my passion is type 1 diabetes. Most of my work is focused in trying to develop immunotherapies to prevent or delay the onset of type 1, eventually to reverse the disease. I spend about 70% sure. of my time in that arena, and then the rest of my time is clinical and administrative work. So when does uh, type 1 typically strike people? Like at what ages and what are the factors that cause you to have it or not have it at certain ages? So type 1 historically uh, has been thought of as what we used to call it juvenile diabetes because it certainly affects a lot of children uh, around school age and then again in the, in the teen years. But that nomenclature was actually dropped a few years ago to just be type 1 diabetes because it actually can happen at, at any age. The youngest type 1s are about six months of age, and we've had people develop type 1 diabetes into their eighth decade of life. So it can really occur anytime, um, and it's a really complicated disease. We, we call it an autoimmune disease because it seems to be characterized by T cells in the immune system that are attacking the, the beta cells in the pancreas that make insulin, but that's really a, a huge oversimplification in that it, it has a genetic background, but genetics doesn't explain it all. It very clearly has environmental triggers, but those don't explain it all. And probably what's most uh, frustrating and, and still fascinating at the same time is that there appear to be hundreds, if not thousands, of different pathways that ultimately lead to uh, what we clinically know as type 1 diabetes. But because it's so complicated in that way, using sort of general approaches or specific therapies and applying them to everybody with type 1, you know, doesn't really work. And so we're, we're learning fairly quickly that, you know, no two patients with type 1 diabetes really do have the same disease. And that, that likely means that they both require different approaches to trying to prevent that same disease um, down the road. So what's different about someone that gets it when they're, you know, five years old versus uh, 50 years old? What's observed clinically or in research, what's been uncovered that's different? Sure. The, you know, the, the kids who get it when they're really young tend to have a stronger genetic component to their disease. So they're more often first degree relatives of somebody else with type one. So mom or dad or have a sibling with type one. And clinically, they, they have, you know, by definition, a much more rapid course. They, they chew up their, their beta cells that make insulin uh, much more rapidly. So they're much harder to effectively change the course of their disease. Whereas somebody who gets diabetes when they're 20, 30, 40 type one diabetes you know, by definition, has taken quite a while to get to that endpoint. And so they may have, you know, less of a genetic component to their disease, have a slower burn in terms of the severity of their autoimmune attack. Um, and ironically, those folks may be more amenable to some of the immunotherapies we're trying to develop uh, simply because we, we essentially have more, you know, clock in the game to try to run up the score on them um, as opposed to the young kids. Well, someone that's, let's say, 50 
that gets type 1 diabetes, how do you know it's type 1 versus not type 2? How can you tell? Yeah, great question. It's, and it's not so easy to, to tell those things apart. Historically, we always thought of somebody with type 2 as being obese, probably having uh, you know dark skin, being of Hispanic or African-American background or Indian background, and you know having a strong family history. But that's not always the case. And similarly, we used to always think of type 1 as being you know, a really skinny Caucasian kid who comes in with a very classic history of weight loss and, you know, inability to maintain their urine and thirst. But nowadays we see very interestingly mixed pictures. So you see a 30 year old, very mildly overweight, you know, mixed ethnicity person with diabetes, and you can't just immediately label them as type one or type two. So we most often use uh, autoantibodies. So these are antibodies that are developed to beta cell antigens um, that are telling us that there's an immune attack going on to help us identify folks who we think really have more of a type 1 phenotype than type 2. But it's also not so uncommon to see both things occurring in the same patient. You know, you get an overweight African-American gentleman in their 40s, you would most historically have thought that's got to be type 2, but we're finding out that, you know, maybe 5 to as many as 10% of those patients do, in fact, have autoantibodies. And so some component of their diabetes is driven by what we would think of as type 1. So how, how does someone have to, again, I'm, I'm talking about more older people for now, but someone that's say, you know, I'm just thinking 50, they have either type 1 or type 2. Clinically, do they do different things? Do they eat different things? I mean, is the yeah, advice there, the there same really are for different them? diseases. If, if you have type 1, no matter your age, you uh, unfortunately are going to need to use insulin sooner rather than later to avoid uh, developing any of the more serious complications of acute diabetic ketoacidosis. Whereas if you have type 2, you can often get by with uh, some of the oral agents. Uh, so it does make a big difference in terms of making sure that you get the diagnosis as, as accurate as you can. In the younger kids in pediatric world where it's pretty clear they have type 1, you know, those, those kids need insulin the day of diagnosis. But some of these adults who have slow-burning type 1 uh, get misdiagnosed, uh, not infrequently, take oral, ins, uh, oral agents for years, if not decades. And then finally, you know, somebody says, man, this patient's diabetes is really hard to control. Maybe this is, in fact, type 1. Well, besides the uh, necessity of insulin, what happens to a person? You know, are there different comorbidities that arise, different lifespan or health span, you know, related factors? I mean, what's different if you have full-blown type 1 or 2, you're taking yeah. insulin, what else? Unfortunately, there's, there's not a, a good kind of diabetes. I sometimes you'll hear that out in the community. You know, if you've got the good diabetes, then they're, they're both, you know, pretty terrible diseases, unfortunately. And they both have serious complication risks associated with them. So type 2 tends to be associated with more rapid onset eye disease, that's retinopathy, kidney disease, nephropathy, and heart-associated uh, disease, vessel disease, so heart attack, stroke. But, uh, but those things also occur in type 1 patients. They just tend to occur after more years of the disease. But, but because there's a bias towards people getting type 1 earlier in their life, uh, again, both type 1 and type 2 patients uh, face those, those same complication risks. And the key to mitigating those is uh, maintaining really tight glycemic control for both, and then uh, for the type twos, is also working hard to achieve a, a healthy weight and trying to make sure their blood pressure and lipids are well controlled. So you spoke about immunotherapy. Um, does that mean immunosuppression, or what does immunotherapy mean and look like for these type ones? Yeah, um, so that space is my is my real passion. You know, I've been working in in this for the last twenty five plus years now, where we're we're trying to largely repurpose drugs that are already out on the market that are used 
to treat patients with you know, malignancies or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or other, other similar diagnoses that, that we, we lump into autoimmunity and see if we can apply them successfully in the type one space. So some of them are classic immunosuppressive drugs, um, which of course is a scary prospect and is one of the reasons it's been challenging to use them in type one uh, because you in some ways would say you're trading one disease for another if you have to be significantly immunosuppressed for a long period of time. But what we're learning is that we can use some of these drugs in kinder, gentler, lower doses uh, and still get really meaningful clinical outcomes for the patient that provide for some long-term preservation of their remaining beta cell mass. Um, so some of them, again, are, are, are truly immunosuppressive. Others are more what we call immunomodulatory. You know, they, they change aspects of the immune system, but don't leave the patients sort of classically immunosuppressed. And those are obviously of greater interest because they're typically uh, more palatable to the patients and families who have to you know, think about, do I want to, you know, take my child, for example, who's recently been diagnosed with this, you know, lifelong burden and add on top of it some other drug. But, you know, in the first 15 to 20 years that I was involved in doing immune therapies, we had a lot of strikeouts. We, we, we went to bat and just tried things that were generally pretty low risk, but they, they just didn't get us, get us on base. But the last five years have been much more exciting in that we've, the pendulum swung a little bit back towards considering the use of some drugs that are a bit more potent, but they're better than the ones we used to have, you know, perhaps in the seventies and eighties. And so we're, we're getting on base and we might even be rounding second in that we're, we're now having four or five agents that, that have shown the ability to preserve beta cell function in, in recently diagnosed patients. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Uh, we even have the first drug this last summer that showed we could, we could delay and even prevent type 1 diabetes in high-risk patients, that being teplizumab. And so you know, that drug is now on course to potentially be the first therapy to get an FDA label for changing the natural history of type 1 diabetes, uh, you know, something that we haven't had. And, and we're coming up now this year on the 100th anniversary of, of the discovery of insulin. So, you know, it's exciting to be able to say we're, we're nearing paradigm shift where we don't just have a, the single tool of you got diabetes and you're going to have to take insulin, but um, we might be able to actually change that disease for folks. Well, how selective is the immune response? Is it does it target the entire islet or only the beta cells within the islet? Uh, the immune response in type one diabetes does appear to be pretty darn beta cell specific, or at least that's the classic teaching. Um, but over the last few years, we've also started to learn that the entire pancreas is sort of in on the game. Um, we found that, uh, for example, the the weight of the pancreas when we when we were able to get um, pancreas uh, tissue from organ donors who've lived with type one is reduced by more than 50% compared to patients who don't have diabetes. 
And when you look at the exocrine pancreas, that's the part of the pancreas that makes all your digestive juices, not just the, the endocrine pancreas, which is the part that makes the insulin, the beta cells, um, the exocrine pancreas is also markedly reduced because the, the endocrine pancreas makes up only you know, two to 3% of the pancreas. So when you see the volume and the mass of the pancreas being reduced by that much, it, it has to be reflective of the exocrine pancreas. So the, the thought is you know, that might just be uh, related to the lack of local insulin as a growth factor, but, but we're currently doing studies to look at live tissue slices from these organ donors um, to help us understand, you know, is there really maybe a little bit of an immune response in the uh, exocrine pancreas as well? The, the, the jury's still out on that, but that may end up being the case. Well, I've heard when um, pancreases are observed that literally beta cells are just not there. You have islets, I guess, that are devoid of beta cells, but there doesn't appear to be any scarification or fibrosis or anything to show that an islet, I mean, sorry, a beta cell was once there. Uh, we do sometimes see that. Uh, and again, this speaks to the heterogeneity of, of type one. You know, we're, we're fortunate here at the University of Florida to have been the site that started this program called the NPOD program, um, which is the, the National Pancreatic Organ Donor Program. And we work with the organ procurement organizations that when unfortunately somebody is going to be considered an organ donor, um, they contact us. And, you know, if the organ can't be used for clinical transplantation for whatever reason, we get it, and and what we're what we're learning from this is that the textbooks were frankly wrong about so much about type one, uh, especially because a lot of what we look at when we when we see pictures of of histology for type one is really not humans; it's often animals, and and the mice models that we use are quite different. So, long story short, is it, it looks different in many different patients. Sometimes there's fibrosis. Sometimes there are lots of beta cells there. Um, sometimes there are very few. Sometimes there, there are beta cells that, that actually still make insulin. Uh, other time there are, are, are beta cells that, that are devoid of insulin. So it's really fascinating. I think it just it speaks to this idea that uh, type 1 diabetes is not a single disease. Uh, it's really a collection of many different diseases that um, we'll probably discover down the road are, are so, uh, so heterogeneous that they, they literally represent individual sort of pathways for each patient. Um, and that makes immunotherapy, you know, a really challenging question. Once we know enough, you would probably say, all right, I'm going to identify this patient who has this kind of immune response, whose pancreas is this big, who has this kind of background HLA, um, you know, this genetic risk score, and they're going to get therapies X, Y, Z. And somebody with different characterization is going to get, you know, therapies A, B, and, and C. So this, this label of type 1 needs to be divided into, I guess, phenotypes or sub, subtypes of uh, type 1 to be able to be addressed properly. Absolutely. And that's where we are at now. You know, clinically, if you ask, you know, your seasoned folks who've been taking care of patients with type 1 for 30, 40, 50 years, they kind of know that inherently. But we just haven't had the tools, I think, from the basic science uh, point of view to really kind of flesh that out. Um, but we're getting better and better at that. And so the hope is we can apply those tools to these patients clinically and preferably in the pre-type 1 space so that we can prevent their disease. So what does the histology of the exocrine part of the pancreas look like? Is there any patterning or, or evidence of anything going wrong? Um, well, that, that's what I'm saying. We're still trying to learn that out literally as we speak. Uh, we have a couple of new grants that are designed to understand that. Um, so one right now that we're doing is uh, using non-invasive imaging of, of live patients, so uh, via MRI, to help understand what the pancreas looks like, both in size and in sort of characteristics. And then we're using some of these, uh, you know, live tissue samples that we get, where we get slices of pancreas to help better understand what the the beta cells look like, but as uh, also the exocrine pancreas. 
but what it, what it looks like now is mostly that the extra pancreas is just shrunken down. Um, we're not seeing a whole lot of specifics yet, but, uh, but there's is a lot it, of is it shrunken down. uniformly? Like, is the head or the tail bigger or longer or shorter? Uh, there, or? there are some differences, and it looks like it shrinks from the tail towards the head. So, uh, and why that might be is, you know, is still kind of to be determined. What cells constitute the estrogen pancreas, and are the islets just randomly distributed throughout the pancreas, or are they focused in certain areas of it? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Um, they're spread throughout the entire pancreas, but they tend to be more uh, enriched in the head. And, and so when you look at a, a full pancreas, you know, you can see them in different places, um, but it varies by patient. Okay. So the only thing observed so far, and you're studying this further, is that the whole pancreas is shrunken in people with type 1. Yeah, that is a, a fair observation. Uh, and it's, a, you know, like I said, it's a pretty remarkable difference, a control patient versus somebody with type 1, same size, the pancreas will be... Um, you know, half the weight, half the volume. Well, what about longitudinal imaging, you know, non-invasive stuff of people when they first get type one and then stay with them for a number of years and see if their pancreas shrinks or changes shape? Yeah. So that's work that we're, we're doing um, as we speak also. Uh, so we just fortunately got a, a grant from the NIH to study this question of, of what really happens over time um, in patients who have type one. From our, from our previous studies, it looks like once type 1 has been diagnosed clinically, most of the pancreas volume reductions already occurred. There's a group at, at Vanderbilt and some other groups who are studying this as well, and they have some data suggesting that the volume might continue to decline. Ours doesn't show that yet, but what, what our group's really interested in are the patients who have pre-type 1, because what we found in our initial studies was that even a, a family member of someone with type 1 who has no autoantibodies, so no discernible risk for type 1 in the near future, other than that they are a family member with type 1, their pancreas volume is already reduced compared to somebody who's a true control, somebody who has no family history. So that to us suggests that there's a genetic background for having a smaller pancreas, and that might be part of diabetes risk. And then as you go to folks who have a single antibody or a multiple antibodies, as they get more high risk for developing type 1, the pancreas volume sort of is reduced in a stepwise manner if you look across the groups. Um, what we don't know yet is is how that translates to change over time. So now we're recruiting patients to follow up with us um, and to be seen at a baseline a year later and then hopefully thereafter to better understand, you know, what is the rate of change in pancreas volume um, in folks who are likely to uh, progress? Because the hope would be we could use that as a fairly cheap and relatively uh, non-invasive um, tool to add to this uh, effort to get towards personalized medicine. You know, we'd say, you know, your pancreas is whatever percent of normal, um, or your pancreas is actually completely normal, and therefore we don't need to be considering this aggressive therapy in patient A versus patient B. Again, we're not quite there yet, but that's what we hope these tools will allow us to do in the not too distant future. Does anyone understand the epigenetic marks associated with pancreatic function? You know, like if you look at type ones, or if you look at normal people over the course of their lifetime, again, is there any, do we know the genes responsible for pancreatic action? And then again, epigenetically, when they get marked up, we understand the up or down regulation of them? So the short answer is no. That's a, a, an area of great exploration right now. There are clearly a, a lot of epigenetic factors involved in type 1 progression, um, both pre- and post-diagnosis. But you know, the, the single greatest factor genetically in predicting type 1 risk is HLA type. You know, so the overwhelming majority of patients have a, a high risk uh, HLA. And then there's a, you know, 40 or 50 other um, genes that have been associated with type 1 risk, but, but HLA by far drives that. And so, 
you know, we, we are getting to a point where you can develop these genetic risk scores that use HLA plus some of these other SNPs, these other markers you know, downstream of that. But, but uh, adding in epigenetics to the mix, again, will hopefully get us to a point where we can really better understand what, um, what you know, two people with type one standing next to each other that we call the same thing, um, how their diseases really do differ and how they may confer risk to their offspring. Okay. In terms of, you said that you can use an antibody test to see someone who's older if they have a type one or type two. So if you're able to do that, I mean, the beta cells in particular are affected most strongly. Has anyone attempted to classify like all the receptors that tend to be on the, you know, the outer membrane of these cells and then antibodies that would interact with them? And like how much uh, drilling down has there been on beta cells in particular to look at what are the targets of the immune system for the beta cell in particular and how it's affecting it? Uh, so I understand your, cor- your question correctly. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the basis for measuring autoantibodies. These are, these are antibody responses to antigens that are you know, on the surface of beta cells. Some of them are, are functional, like glutamic acid decarboxylase. You know, obviously, that, that does some work inside the beta cell. Others are purely just antigens that, that define the beta cell for what it is, like insulin or in action, but, but outside the cell itself. So people have been working, you know, very diligently at better understanding the beta cell itself because while I, I sort of intimated at the beginning of this conversation that we, we treat type 1 as an autoimmune disease, and I still firmly believe it is, um, there's no doubt that the beta cell itself is complicit in its own demise. It is a disease of the beta cell, not necessarily a disease of the immune system. And there are some who argue quite reasonably that, you know, the immune response, while obviously defining the progression of the disease, might in fact be secondary. Um, and that the primary disease is the beta cell itself being defective. And because of that, um, you know, uh, action, it, it, it's what triggers the immune response. There's a whole group of folks who consider themselves beta cell biologists who <laughs> you might argue, you know, the beta cell is the end-all be-all of it. And then there are others um, who are immunologists who say, oh, no, this is you know, purely an immune-mediated disease. You know, the HLA definitions show that the, the ability of immunotherapies to augment the disease uh, show that. And then there's the reality, which is probably it's a mix of all those things, which makes the darn thing you know, very tough to solve, again, you know, for, for groups of people, let alone any one patient. But again, like you alluded to earlier, there's, it's heterogeneous, the disease, and there's probably a bunch of major subtypes of it. So you know, thinking about it only in one way is a mistake, but are you, are you able to isolate purely, you know, the immune component of type one for at least one of the subtypes that you see? Yeah. Like how finely do you need to approach this? That's a great question. If nothing, I'm a pragmatist. And so while I would love, I love the science and be able to like say, you know, you have type diabetes 1.69346, you know, it, it might be good enough to say you have diabetes one point something um, to, to the 10th. And, and apply therapies because all of our studies to date have really done just that. Um, and we're still able to show some benefit for a majority of the patients. That being said, the, the therapies we have are still kind of crude and we, we are working hard to make them more specific and targeted, not affect the entire immune system. So they are truly more immunomodulatory than immunosuppressive. But it would be, you know, certainly pie in the sky to be able to understand somebody's type of diabetes that specifically and know we could give them a very specific therapy that would help them. But it may be unnecessary to get at that level of detail uh, in the clinical world uh, if we can get drugs that work. You know, the, I think the other major thing that we fight with in the type 1 space is historically, you know, we've treated patients in research studies with a single therapy 
one time and then we see what happens. But that's not the real world of how you treat almost any other immune-mediated disease. You know, most of these require repeat therapy or even constant therapy. Um, it's just that in the type one world, once we kind of commit to using insulin, people think, well, insulin is the therapy. Um, and of course, if you don't have enough beta cells around you, you absolutely have to have insulin. Um, but if we could be involved in the process earlier on, you know, which is happening now because we're able to do autoantibody screening in larger populations, uh, people are starting to even initiate autoantibody screening in the general population. Um, we're going to have this big group of folks who we know are heading towards clinical type one, um, but we might be able to, again, change that natural history if we're able to give them a therapy. And it may not just be a therapy. It may be you know, therapy A when they're five years old and then therapy B when they're six years old and then, you know, continuation of therapy um, C, you know, thereafter, as long as it's low risk and well tolerated. But that's, you know, very analogous to how you treat things like rheumatoid arthritis, um, whether it be in, in kids or adults. So I think that's where the field is headed in the not too distant. How difficult would it be to uh, examine like all the surface features of, of beta cells? you know, in a, in a population of people, would that be like an incredibly difficult task? Would that even provide any uh, useful information? It's really, it's really impossible. Um, as, as my friend and mentor, Dr. Desmond Schatz says often, you know, why the good Lord put the pancreas where it is and the beta cells where they are, um, is, is one of the great mysteries of life and, and makes it a huge challenge. And they, you just can't get tissue from a patient easily. Um, it's not like you can go do a skin biopsy and get all the answers you want. And so that certainly has limited the field uh, incredibly over the years. Uh, and again, why the NPOD study is so exciting and, and helping us to rewrite the books because we're able to actually look at the real tissues instead of like, trying to extrapolate from the animals. But like you said, you know, it, it may be um, really cool and novel basic science. And, and there, that always ultimately ends up uh, improving our understanding of the world and, and down the road and improving our ability to, you know, to change the lives of patients. But those, you know, those kinds of efforts are a much longer um, time horizon. And as a clinician, you know, I, I'm also very impatient. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to having things I can use now. And I'm of the mindset that, you know, they don't have to be perfect and they don't have to be so personalized as long as they provide a benefit to, you know, the majority of patients. And like I said, we're, we're, we're right on the crux of that with Drugs like teplizumab, drugs like uh, low-dose antithymocyte globulin, which I've been studying with our team here for the last uh, decade with a, a, extremely good results. Um, recent data from, uh, from a drug called Symphony, golimumab. Um, that's a drug that's approved down to two years of age to treat, uh, again, rheumatoid arthritis in kids. We had excellent results with that drug in, in nuance at type 1. So I think we're finally getting some more tools in the toolbox. Um, and over the next decade, I hope we learn how to apply those tools um, you know, either alone or in combination to really make a more meaningful uh, change for folks living with type 1. If what I understand drugs ending in MAB means a monoclonal antibody, yeah. I'm not very familiar with it, but for listeners, can you express like what's the method of action of the MABs, you know, the monoclonal antibodies? How do they work? Yeah. So th these are, um, you know, engineered drugs essentially. So these monoclonal antibodies, mono meaning one, a clone uh, is a type and an antibody. So they're, they're really designed to be these sort of heat-seeking missiles against a particular marker typically on a cell surface. And they go after either a marker on a cell um, or a receptor and they, you know, destroy or block it. So just for example, you know, teplizumab, uh, which is a, a engineered monoclonal antibody against the marker 
uh, cell determinant three. So it's a marker that sort of defines T cells. Um, when you give this antibody, it goes out and binds to the CD3 and causes the T cells to ultimately be destroyed. And so, you know, it's, it's certainly not particularly specific um, immunosuppressive agent. It's, it's pretty generalized. But when given at the right dose, it appears to provide for some degree of immune reset. And it very clearly uh, results in preservation of beta cell function for these patients. And this recent study I mentioned, you know, it's now been shown to delay progression to clinical type one in very high risk patients by two to three years. You ask anybody living with type one and ask them, you know, what, what value would there be in delaying the onset of type one by you know, two or three years? They'll laugh and tell you, you know, I'd pay almost anything to have had a couple extra days without type one, let alone that, that period of time. So uh, again, it's not, we're not, we're not the point where we're curing disease, but we're getting, we're getting closer. So these monoclonal antibodies, um, and then they're being developed against every single kind of marker you can think of, uh, pathway you can think of involved in type one, you can understand how you should be able to logically apply them either in, in series or sequence or combination to you know, further augment the disease um, and, and get us to a point where we can stop it from progressing and, and save people from having to need insulin at all if we do it early enough in the process. Well, what's the method of action by which the, you know, these monoclonal antibodies slow the progression of the disease? Like, even in rheumatoid arthritis, like, why does it work in general? Yeah, well, so at the end of the day, it works because if you get rid of the T cells that are ultimately, uh, in, the, in the example of, of, of teplizumab, that the T cells that are, um, you know, that are ultimately responsible for attacking the beta cells directly and destroying them, um, it's just like losing soldiers in a battle. You know, you take out somebody's entire platoon, they, they're less likely to cause you damage. So you're taking out the bad guys. Um, you know, another example would be rituximab. That's an anti-B cell agent. Um, we used to we always talk about type one as being a classically T cell mediated disease, but the B cells have to talk to the T cells for the T cells to know what to do. Um, and so that's like cut, cutting out, you know, somebody's communications team in the middle of a war. If I take out the B cells and they can't tell the T cells what to do, essentially, I've also handicapped that platoon. Uh, and so that helps you preserve your, your beta cells for longer. Polyclonal and monoclonal antibodies being de developed to all these different targets um, to try and stop disease. I mentioned briefly anti-thymocyte globulin, which is you know one of my drugs of choice because um, I've done the most work with it. That one's actually a polyclonal antibody, and it's it's not really made in a designer way. It's um, it's made the old-fashioned way. Um, we literally take thymus tissue from kids who are having heart surgery, typically, put it in a special colony of rabbits that then make a mix of antibodies to all the different T cells that come from that patient's thymus. Um, and then you can purify the rabbit's antibodies. And now you've got this mix of antibodies against every single marker on a, on a T cell, not just the CD3 marker. And that's a drug that's used you know, every day in any large hospital for kidney transplantation, kidney rejection, you know, pretreatment for chemotherapy. We've been able to show that applying that drug at a very low dose in type one patients also um, provides for at least two years of beta cell preservation in newly diagnosed patients. Uh, and are planning to move that into a prevention trial uh, here as soon as we hit past the elephant in the room of COVID. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Michael, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, I invite people to visit uh, the University of Florida Diabetes Institute website. You can come there. I am uh, happy to take emails directly. You can email me. Um, my email is uh, publicly available on the web. Um, most folks can find if you go to the University of Florida Diabetes Institute. 
and I'm, I'm happy to answer questions uh, directly uh, if you don't find the answers to what you need uh, on our website. Very good. Dr. Michael Haller, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My yeah, pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.